Hey, I'm JR. And I'm Mike from the 18 over par with Mike and JR podcast. Welcome to season three of the pod where we'll continue exploring the sights, stories, and sounds of golf on the prairies where you'll find some of the most golf courses per capita of anywhere in the world and beer. Lots of beer. Lots of beer, JR. It's the 18 Over Par Podcast with Mike and JR. You suck, you duckass. Welcome to 18 Over Par with Mike and JR, proudly presented by Bryce Malashewski, who is an investment advisor with Endeavor Wealth Management part of IA Private Wealth, and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. You can contact Bryce at 204-515-3446. I'm JR, he's Mike, and today we're joined by your friendly neighborhood Akushnet rep, Rob McMillan. He had a stellar amateur career in the province, and he was the 1996 Manitoba Open champion as an amateur before turning pro. Well, it's taken us uh, three seasons to get a hold of this gentleman, but uh, he's busy. He's a family man now, but he's also got some uh, great products that he's going to throw out there and some great stories uh, as well. Hopefully I'm not pumping your tires too much uh, to bring you in here, but we really want to say thank you for taking the time to sit down and uh, chat with both Mike and I. And we want to give a huge shout out as always to Bryce Matlashewski, who is an investment advisor with Endeavor Wealth Management, part of IA Private Wealth, and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. You can contact Bryce 204-515-3446. You can also ask him to take you for a round at St. Charles Golf and Country Club. Just like he, he offered Mike and I. times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's offered. It's just trying to he find might, a time when everyone's... Offered, he might have offered you. Oh. He never offered me. <laughs> he's seen you enough and heard from you enough. <laughs> but we have all his info in our pod show notes as well uh, in our link tree. We are that special. We have a, a link tree as well. And we'll, hey, maybe we'll even throw a link for... Some of the Akushnet products we'll be uh, chatting about uh, later on here with Rob. But Rob, first and foremost, do you even remember how you got into this game of golf? Uh, yeah, I guess I, yeah, it's a long, long time ago for sure. But um, I always had the good fortune, like I came from a golfing family. So lots and lots of good memories. And uh, I had the good fortune of starting off really young. Like I think I started golfing, like not seriously or anything, but just kind of hitting the ball around when I was like five years old. So um, lots of good memories. And uh, I always say I had the good fortune of, I have two older brothers, Dave and Darren, who are accomplished players. So um, I really had a huge benefit of watching them grow up and do it first before me. So uh, they deserve a lot of credit for all the stuff that I got to do for sure, but uh, definitely reap the benefits of being the, the third in line and being able to watch uh, watch everything that they did. Did you have a lot of hand-me-downs? More more on the clothing side than the golf club side because, um, like, where it's funny, we're all pretty spaced, like, uh, spaced apart in age. Like, my oldest brother, Dave, is seven years older than me. My brother, Darren, is four years older than me, and he was he's a lefty. So there was no passing down of the clubs going on there, but, uh, that's good. Uh, you lucked out. 
That's right. That's right. So I, uh, anyways, because we were far enough apart in age, not a lot, but, um, that was also a benefit as well because we kind of didn't, we weren't neck and neck competing against each other all the time. There was a little bit of an age gap there. So, uh, just the way, the way things worked out. Did you ever come across a time where you realized that you were actually pretty good at this game? I'd say at the start when I was pretty young, I, I, I was really pretty naive to it all. I don't think I really felt like I was that great or anything. I just, something I really like to do in the summer times and had lots of friends that wanted to do the same thing. And then I think probably when I was like 13, 14 is kind of when it really started to kind of register that I, I, you know, I was pretty good at it and maybe had a, a bit of a future in it. So I don't think anything before that. I mean, I, I definitely had aspirations to do it. Um, from like when I was a young kid, it definitely was something that intrigued me. I don't know if it really was something that I sat back and thought that I had a legit chance to maybe chase that dream or not. Maybe when I became a teenager is when I felt like I was maybe could go in that direction. But again, I had the benefit where my older two brothers were good players and they played college golf. So I kind of knew the steps to take that kind of had had to happen where if they weren't already doing those things and maybe it would be more of a sharper learning curve. Um, but I'd say probably when I was a teenager is when the kind of the light went on that I was maybe could, could take it to a different level. Do you remember what clubs you were playing at that time? Were they Titleist? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> maybe a person in wood or two. I remember, but I think, I think, you know, when, when I was younger and, ping was like a big deal mm. like ping i2 irons i'm gonna definitely dating myself here but ping i2 irons were kind of the rage like if you were cool yeah instead of ping i2 irons so um that was kind of a big deal when i remember growing up um but definitely persimmon i mean i remember i think it was my freshman year of college or maybe my sophomore year I was still used a persimmon driver. There wasn't many left at that point, but but I was hitting a persimmon driver like my freshman year of college. Wow. And then maybe maybe like the next year is when like the you know big the, I don't think it was the greatest big bertha but big bertha kind of became a thing with Cal- and that was kind of like the first really like oversized driver. Uh, that really kind of changed a lot of things, but that's, I am seriously dating myself when I uh, drop those little tidbits, but uh, yeah, it was uh, a different time for sure. I think I remember seeing a few of those kicking around the golf shop there, Dale Asapenko's golf shop there at Assiniboine <laughs> Golf Club. But I remember the ping on two, two irons. It's <laughs> funny that you did mention that because it was always one, I mean, we'd always joke. It's either you're really, really good at golf or you have a shit ton of money in order to play the ping I two irons way back when <laughs> sometimes yeah, it was yeah, both, the, but they were, yeah. And they were brilliant. Like they had a brilliant set back in the day. I remember that were like kind of like a copper color. Those were like, those were, those were a big deal. Those were a big deal for sure. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And now I it, saw tiger tiger was on the range. There was a little uh, video of him hitting a per, per Simmons driver. Um, and he was hitting about 290-something just it was today or yesterday. Yeah, that's insane, especially for, you know, the distances guys are hitting it now. But still, like, 
you look at a, I still actually have one in my basement and it looks like a five wood. Like it's not even, I can't fathom that that was a driver. Mm-hmm. It was so small. Well then now with, with the new technology, maybe we'll jump in into that a little bit. Do you think it's easier to play golf now than it was then? For sure. For sure. Without a doubt. Yeah. Like, um, I think it's the technology has helped everybody. It's helped the best players in the world for sure. But it's, I think it's more has helped the average golfer without a question. Um, I think that, you know, the more forgiving heads and the, and the perimeter weighting and the golf ball, all of it has helped the, the average golfer for sure. I mean, it's helped everybody, but it's helped the average golfer more for sure, which is at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Like golf is a hard game. We don't need to make it harder. So anything we can do to make it easier for people, you know, we should be signing up because it's, it's a hard game. And, um, you know, if a lot of people haven't had the good fortune of maybe starting out young, then it's, it's, it's a hard game to learn later in life too. So, um, I think the technology's made a, made a, a big difference and, and it's been good for the game. Well, I know Mike is a big equipment guy. And uh, what have you seen? I'm, I'm sure you've done some, maybe some indoor uh, fittings or some yeah, fitting days at some of the clubs. And what are you seeing people want to try out the most this season? Yeah. Like, it's funny. We always say the driver kind of stirs the drink mm-hmm. is the straw that stirs the drink, right? Like the, the, everybody wants to try a driver. It doesn't matter. You know, we'll have a fit day and someone will come in and say they have their heart set on new wedges or a set of irons, but it doesn't take long to try to convince them that they want to hit a few drivers too. So, um, yeah, driver is definitely the one that everybody wants to come and try for sure. And, you know, it seems to be the one that people can kind of want to know their data on it more than any other club. You know, they want ball speed. They want to know their spin rates. They want to know their launch angle, all that good stuff. So, um, maybe not as much of that information on iron fittings and and such. So, um, but people want to know what their ball speeds are and, and what their spin rates are and, and maybe compare it to some of the guys on tour and stuff. So those definitely, uh, the one that people want to, you know, test the most. And then when we do fittings, we try to like, if someone's interested in a driver, we want to fit that club first because we, we know that that person only has so many swings in them. We don't want them to sit there and make a hundred swings. Like we want to make them. 30, 40 swings and be done. So if the, you know, the most exertion is going to be with the driver, let's get that one out of the way first. Yeah, I feel that. I don't know if you, if you remember, so we're uh, again on zoom here. So you, you can't, our listeners can't see us, but we can uh, see you. But do you remember seeing Mike purchase a Scotty Cameron putter off you? Was it last year, Mike, or the year before? Uh I think it was, uh, it might've been at the beginning of last year. I I reached out to you and, uh, it was for my brother-in-law. Oh, my my sister was looking for a Scotty, a left-handed Scotty phantom. Um, and you hooked it up and I picked it up at St. Charles. Um, yeah. Yeah. Especially uh, last year. Like, man, like, (laughs) Uh, I don't want to revisit last year for a lot of different reasons, but especially in the golf industry, getting product was like, it was literally like finding a needle in a haystack. So yeah, some of that stuff was uh, I, that it, like, it wasn't that difficult to do was, was pretty difficult. to, <laughs> to Right. Do. And funny enough, since I had your 
your your information and probably one of those annoying people that goes right to the source and where i could probably just go anywhere and find it but i was trying to find some pro sls in a certain size certain width and a certain color and i think i emailed you too and uh and i think i just ordered them off of the uh the website ended up ordering the website but gotcha. uh, love the uh, akushnet uh products what is all under the Akushnet uh, umbrella? So that's a great question. So, you know, Titleist and Footjoy are probably the two brands that everybody kind of um, partners with or thinks of when they hear the Akushnet brand. And uh, we also do Pinnacle, Pinnacle Golf Balls, which is under the uh, Titleist Akushnet brand. Um, we also do... Um, uh, an apparel company called Juice, which is a KJUS, which is a big apparel brand that started in um, overseas that now is part of the Akushnet family. Um, this is a, a much of a smaller company called Lynx and Kings, which is was kind of like a custom head cover company, which was a really small niche kind of brand that was mostly in the U.S. That's part of our under our develop uh, umbrella now, and then. Um, in the uh, probably last few months, um, Cushion has also started um, or bought uh, Club Glove, which was a, a big travel cover company that does mostly travel products um, that is now under the Cushion umbrella as well. So maybe a few in there that people don't think of, mm-hmm. um, but Titleist and Footjoy would be would be the big ones for sure. And then Scotty uh, and Vokey are kind of under that Titleist umbrella yeah. yeah i would i would put them under the titleist umbrella yeah. for sure um, i guess we're we're under two umbrellas here for our <laughs> listeners if they're visioning this but uh, it's raining pretty hard out there but uh, sorry i cut you off yeah no no it's all good like so you know uh we're or i'm very fortunate to be able to work for a cushion obviously and and you know when we have the ability to sell tsr metals and t100 irons and scotty cameron putters and Vokey wedges and Pro V1 golf balls. Um, that's a pretty good lineup. That's pretty much the top of the pyramid in every every category. So um, I want to say I don't take it for granted, but sometimes it's easy to take it for granted that you lose sight of that's all. They could be standalone company like Vokey wedges or Scotty Cameron Potters could be a standalone company and and have pretty strong market shares, and they just happen to be part of the Titleist umbrella. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. Well, I will give a this, shout out to uh, uh, to Mike as he did turn me on to the Pro SLs. I remember him looking for for some and he couldn't find them. And so, sure enough, uh, I ended up getting a pair from Andrew Steep at Southwood because he had a sale on at the end of last year. Hmm. Picked some up, and then uh, the next day at the range, I probably got three or four compliments on them. Hmm. So there you go. Yeah, Thanks, it's a great Mike. shoe. Super comfortable, Corey. Corey Connors, uh, our good Canadian buddy mm-hmm. there, one on the PGA Tour last week, was is a pro SL wearer. So um, lots and lots of guys on the PGA Tour wear that shoe. Um, yeah, it's a great all-around shoe. It's spikeless, which is a, a nice thing, but I always say it doesn't perform like a spike. You wouldn't ever think it's a spikeless shoe with the, with the way it performs. It, um, tons of traction, super comfortable. Um, yeah, it's kind of everything that Footjoy is known for. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, favorite things to do is 
go on the FootJoy website, My FootJoys, I think it's called, and you can customize your shoes with different leathers right. and colors and different styles. I, I've yet to order, but uh, right. I have fantasized about a few different uh, <laughs> uh, designs I've put together. So check that out if you have a few few minutes, listeners, and uh, and actually order them too. <laughs> Yeah, super cool program called My Joys. My Joys. Um, so myjoys.com. And you can, we don't offer it in every shoe, but there are certain styles that we offer. Um, and then the cool thing about that, you can make them any color, you can do whatever you want to them. And then it's also a nice uh, option for a lot of guys that are maybe a difficult fit, where maybe they wear a, a shoe size that's just hard to come by that uh, they you don't really find a lot of it. So we'll get a lot of people that wear just a, you know, like a, like a 13 extra wide or something crazy like that, where they can never find a shoe. A lot of times those guys will end up and just go and do a MyJoy and customize and do anything they want because they have such a hard time finding that shoe anyways that they know they can get their size and get any way they want. Where like 13 extra wide sometimes is stuck with the really ugly one left on the shelf at the end of the year because it's such an odd size. So this way it doesn't uh, maybe get stuck with those. <laughs> yeah. I'll check it out. Uh, this question, JR, this one came up uh, last, last episode with um, Marshall. Marshall Patterson was pumping the Akushnet uh, uh, products pretty heavy and he is a Titleist staffer. And, mm-hmm. and I think me and JR know what a, a staffer is but maybe you can tell us how do you become a, a brand staffer and what is a, I think I've heard a master staffer too. Right. Yeah. So I think us in our, or for me in my territory or uh, for a Kushnet, we'll have certain um, staff members or club pros or, or whatever you want to call it that would kind of fall under our umbrella. And we would say a good way to think of it is kind of like a brand ambassador. Right. So we would call them like a staffer, but I like to look at it more like they're a brand ambassador for us. So they're kind of the ones that fly the Titleist and FootJoy flag for us. And at the end of the day, those are really the guys on the front line. Like, yes, I work for Titleist and FootJoy and I promote the products and I sell the products. But at the end of the day, I don't have as much uh, contact with the end consumer. You know, I'll have my, for a good example, I know you mentioned Andrew Seep. Well, Andrew Seep is a customer of mine and, you know, I've convinced him why he needs to order this product and carry it in his pro shop. But he's the one really at the front lines telling that member or that consumer why this is such a good thing and you got to have it. So for that, all those reasons, um, that's why we we would call them like a brand ambassador or a staff member that, you know, of flies the flag for us in front of the consumer. So super, super important. Like I believe, and I think, and I don't think I believe and our company believes like the golf professional is a, probably the most important person in the golf industry. Like they're the ones that are on the front lines, promoting the game, teaching the game, making sure that, you know, everything that people are getting out there and playing and doing all those things. So um, we know that if, if those individuals are, on our team, so to speak, then, you know, we have a better chance to sell more product and hopefully help everybody else with their games and help them play better. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the staffer uh, is only uh, reserved for 
club pros or potentially podcasters as well. <laughs> well, you never, you, there's, there's never, uh, I like to say, you never say never. <laughs> and uh, I think um, that is above my pay grade. So um, I'll have to uh, take that up the food chain. But uh, at this point, it's probably just more of a club professional thing. But hey, you look around, you look around and see, um, the way the industry's going, there's a lot of influencers out there that are, uh, doing a lot of things. So it's, it's, it's not that those, it's just a matter of time before that starts happening. In yeah. my opinion. Yeah. We need a few hundred thousand more followers and <laughs> listeners, uh, to, yeah. to, to make that a possibility, but yeah, uh, never know. <laughs> yeah. We have to pump out a lot more kids in order to uh, ensure that they're listening to the pod. We take a quick break to hear from Bryce Matlashewski, who is an investment advisor with Endeavor Wealth Management, part of IA Private Wealth, and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Well, Bryce, it's uh, it's great to uh, to have you on and to have a quick chat. My first question is, uh, what can an investment advisor like yourself from Endeavor Wealth uh, do for me, and how can that differ from my my current experience of trading with Wealthsimple, uh, just based on my the recent Twitter feeds. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me on, you guys. Yeah, d- discount brokers like Wealthsimple uh, certainly have their place, uh, but at the end of the day, you get what you you pay for. Uh, those platforms are very limited in what they offer, and they're more ideal for just basic trading. So if that's what you're looking to do, and it, it's really not a bad platform for that. But what we do at Endeavor, uh, we take a more holistic approach. Uh, we examine an individual's needs, uh, both short-term and long-term, and we go way beyond just investments. We look for tax opportunities, ensuring the decisions you are making today uh, minimize your overall tax that you might be paying. Uh, we also help our clients address estate and insurance needs. So really anything we can do to uh, assist in your overall wealth management approach. And going back to some of those discount brokers and, and, and things that you see on the internet, uh, a lot of times people don't realize the amount of intrinsic risk that they're taking on with with making some of those trades. And so finding balance is, is another key thing that we do for our clients at, at Endeavor. That was Bryce Malashewski, who is an investment advisor with Endeavor Wealth Management, part of IA Private Wealth, and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. You can contact Bryce at 204-515-3446. Funny, I think we've only mentioned yeah. the, the golf ball once, and that has to that has to be like the... I'm going to say pinnacle, but you also have pinnacle, but, uh, the pinnacle of you know, the Kushnet brands, it probably must start with a golf ball. It does. You're hundred percent right. Like I think if you, if you mention the word Titleist to most people, that's the first thing they're going to think of is a, is golf ball and Pro V1. It's amazing what they, if any, you know, golf balls are made for the longest time. The ball plant was in still is there's one ball plant in Boston or just outside of Boston. Um, and then now we have another one in Thailand and all the people that work in those factories are all a cushion employees. They're not, we make the golf ball from, from top to bottom with our own people in our own factories and our own machinery. And what that does is it let us control the process entirely. So quality, control all the R&D everything is done by a cushion of people so the reason I mentioned that is because you don't do that and, and go to all those 
take all those steps and all those procedures if golf balls aren't a big deal to you. <laughs> and golf balls are a major, major deal to, to a cushionette. And, um, you know, I always say that a lot of our competitors, their, their golf ball is made, you know, they might have uh, someone the core of their golf ball. They might have someone who makes the cover of their golf ball. And then they kind of ship it to one factory and then they put it all together at once, but it's being farmed out. It's being piecemealed off to somebody where what we're doing is we're doing all of it ourselves. So to answer your question, like if you ever get into the Boston area and you can go to Titleist ball plant and actually take a tour of it, you'd swear we're putting somebody on the moon. Like it is crazy. The stuff that goes on in there, like you'd swear we're sending rockets to the moon. Like it's, it's unbelievable. I've and, uh, heard it's like I've heard it's like a top five bucket list thing to do if you're an addict, addicted to golf, like we are. Like you got to go to the Titleist Ball Plants. This is on yeah. my bucket list, and I was going to ask yeah, you always, about it. We always say that if we could, like we we will send some of our customers down there from time to time to see it, because if we can actually show them that they walk out of there and they go, this is like unbelievable. The steps that we go through to make a ball. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's definitely great for our, our partners, but it's just super cool to see if you're, if you're a golfer, like it, it, I'm literally, it'll blow your mind the stuff that we, that goes on in there. So I wish I could do a better job of doing it justice, but it's, if you ever get in the area, it is, it's well worth it. And for the longest time they didn't do, uh, consumer tours that it was just basically it just didn't happen and now they are doing them on a regular basis and it's it's if anybody gets in the air i haven't had anybody come back that just said like just we're blown away by what what goes on is there anything and well, maybe well i mean you might know or you might not but with you know the recent talk from the usga and the rna about rolling back the golf ball for you know like the pro pros i can imagine that kind of takes the r d for a loop or maybe they were preparing for it already, but uh, do you know what, you know, Titleist is doing when it comes to that? Yeah. Like I would say, um, I'd like to say I'm privy to all of that. I'm definitely not privy to all of that for sure. But if there's one thing I know, uh, they're, they're always so much, so far down the road with product generation. I'd be shocked to think that they haven't already been down that road in some respects. Like for a good example, like when TSR driver launches last fall, when that driver finally comes to retail, they're already in testing stages and development stages for the next driver. So, and we are much different too, where we only launch new product every two years. So it's not like every year we have a new driver. It's every two year. They're always, the product generation is such a, revolving door so to speak that they're always they're always one step ahead so i i I don't think i'm out of line saying that i'm sure that there's been iterations of that of maybe a rollback ball or or i'm sure that there's been some meetings of the minds in the industry with you know other brands so like anybody that's in the golf ball business i'm sure they've kind of put their collective heads together and probably thought of where this is all going to end up. So they're definitely something they're considering, something they have to take seriously, but it's kind of at that wait and see standpoint right now, I'd say. And on the the topic of the balls we had, when we had Marshall on the last uh, long interview that we had here on 18 over par, 
you mentioned the the dash left and we were kind of like oh can you get those in mm. canada and i think you can i didn't do my full-on research but you i'm can. pretty sure yeah so there you go yeah you can yeah it's it's kind of a uh like a niche product it's not one that you would walk into your golf shop and see sitting on the shelf but it is a it's definitely um for a lot of that uh you know like golf nerd golf geek kind of guy that i always say that are on that my golf spy or golf works or whatever you want to call it that ball gets a lot of attention on there so we get a lot of the questions about that golf ball maybe um you know you're the average player but that really dedicated gear type of guy that always wants to know what's kind of the latest and greatest uh, definitely we get a lot of that 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 uh, asked about that product it's a phenomenal ball but we just don't really promote it a whole lot because we almost treat treat it like a uh, like a custom set of clubs right like it's not something you kind of buy off the rack it's kind of a specialty item um and it's for a very very small select few like if you look at the the daryl survey which gets done on the pga tour every week there might be a handful of guys playing that ball out of 150 every week. So it's not like there's, you know, half the guys that are playing Titleist golf balls every week are using that ball. It's a pretty small number because it is, a, like I said, it's a niche product. Mm. Yeah. I think we're going to try some. Interesting. If Marshall makes his way up here. We'll try some out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned to Marshall, I, I do play a Titleist ball most of the time. However, it's a it's a used Pro V1, so I'm not <laughs> sure what your thoughts are on used Pro Vs, but uh, I'm sure they're they're not as good as as a brand new ball. Not as good as a brand new ball, but still uh, still pretty darn good. But you know what? The, the way I thought about it is uh, it's kind of like the used car market. The new car market can't exist without the used car market. So I'm the guy buying the the used balls, and uh, you know the the new ball market is uh, succeeding because of because of me. There you go. <laughs> he trades in three used for one new. That's what Mike does. You'll see him uh, peddling it outside a golf shop near you. <laughs> <laughs> you did mention uh, on the clubs. Uh, I need a uh, new, uh, oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was going to say I need a new hookup for my, my used ones. But uh, anyways, oh. you got, get at me at the on the social medias. But I'll let you go there, JR. Yeah, I was just wondering, you mentioned with the clubs. What do you have in your bag right now? Uh, I have uh, TSR3 uh, as my driver and fairway wood. In the TSR lineup, there's um, the two and the three kind of do probably 80% of our sales. There's a TSR1 and a TSR4 as well. Uh, TSR4 would be kind of our lowest spinning driver. TSR1 would be kind of like for what we would call kind of like slower swing speeds, people that need a little bit more speed. Um, but TSR three and TSR two would be the, the two models that kind of drive the bus that that's, does, like I said, probably 80 to 85% of our sales. Very, very stubborn, I guess you could say, because I'm still playing like a Ford blade MBs that I've played most of my life that I probably shouldn't play anymore because I don't golf very much. Uh, but I just love them and I can't get them out of my bag and a couple of Vokey wedges and the new Scotty super select putter that just hit the market. So which are phenomenal. Like if, um, if you ever get a chance to, to roll a few putts with that thing, it, I mean, it's nice to look at. They're always nice to look at, but the feel off these new putters are absolutely incredible. I don't get to play much anymore. And, but I'm still funny because 
like when new new my new clubs come in like i got my new putter maybe like two weeks ago two and a half weeks ago and i'm like it's in the basement and i got a little putting mat and i got a hit a few putts here and there so i'm still like a golfer at heart like i still when i get the new stuff rolls in i can't get you know can't get my hands on it quick enough and test it out so um but yeah i'm pretty much of a, a traditionalist so to speak like i don't tinker with my clubs a whole lot. Like I know what I like and I played the same kind of stuff for a long time, but the TSR medals too have been incredible. Like I've, I'm not the biggest guy and I'm not the longest hitter, but it's amazing how you can, I don't know how they keep doing it, but you know, just by taking the TSI driver head off and plopping the TSR driver head on the current shaft I had, I think I picked up like two and a half to three miles an hour ball speed just with, taking not altering the shaft whatsoever we're just putting the brand new head on there and we found that with all of our our fits in the new tsr it's been it's been incredible um but i'm definitely a traditionalist at heart for sure well i guess you've had such great success with them so why change right <laughs> well yeah i get i guess but I, I definitely feel like some days when i play that i look down at them and i'm like what am i doing it's like i don't play enough to hit this this little four or five iron anymore. Well, you are so, a family uh, man now. So, hit nice. so how often do you get out? Like yeah, well, to, are we talking in the, in the single digits here or more than that? So I played, uh, uh, last year for a lot of different reasons. One, because we had such a late start to the season last year and then, which doesn't help. And then because the supply chain was such a disaster, uh, in the golf industry last year, definitely, put us on uh you know catch up mode for a lot of it so i'll put that all into one like i only played 10 games last year which is not very good for for me but uh you know oh i think anybody that works in the industry understands that you know we have a season so when it's here it's it's go time and we have to to kind of make hay when 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 the sun's shining so to speak so I don't think there's too many people in the industry that play a ton of golf. So, you know, I would say on average for me, it's probably 20 games would probably be a good year for me right now. But as my kids get a little bit older and, and um, I think I'll probably get to play a little bit more, but it's just kind of the stage of life where you got younger kids and, and busy in their activities and, and working. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's good. They got to bring in a paycheck too, right? Got to keep that, uh, keep that money flowing. (laughs) Are they, are they golfers? (laughs) Are they learning from you in golfing? So my, uh, my oldest, my oldest daughter, Gracie is, is a golfer. Um, Gracie will be 16, uh, this summer and she's definitely got the golf bug a little bit. So plays a few, uh, MJT events and stuff. So it's been great to, to watch her kind of get, uh, get the golf bug. And then my youngest daughter, Kate, is 11, and she like she'll come and hit the ball around and have some fun, but definitely not at where it's uh, yeah she she thinks it's fun for a little bit, but maybe a little bit boring uh, after a while too, which is pretty normal for kids that age. So, uh, but they but I'd say that's probably one of the most uh, enjoyable things for me is just going to the course and maybe playing three or four holes with them or hitting some balls or doing whatever. That's that's a lot of fun. Well, who ended up playing with you when you, well, I guess uh, the way that Darren Hayden phrased it, when Timu Solani got to play with Rob McMillan. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we were lucky enough to play at a course in California. We were on holidays and uh, we only played one one game. We didn't, it wasn't definitely not a golf vacation whatsoever. 
and a friend of mine who's knows Timo a little bit, we were just out playing and he actually brought him out to see us. So we wouldn't, we didn't play with him, but he knew that it would be a big deal from anybody that's from Winnipeg to, to see Timu. And so we are at long story on one hole and he comes around the corner and Timu's in the cart with them and comes and takes a bunch of pictures and talk with him for a couple of minutes about Winnipeg. And he was just the super, super down earth guy that everybody says he is. It's exactly what he was. So it was really cool. I think definitely more cool for me than, um, than my daughter, because my daughter doesn't really know too much about him, but it was, it was a super cool moment for sure. Yeah. I saw that you were a Nike sales rep for a few years and wondering, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? And, um, um yeah what a i i never owned any nike clubs myself but i always they looked pretty cool and i know a few guys with nike still right so yeah when i played professionally for nine years and then when that kind of started to i knew that that was kind of coming to an end i actually took the a job working at golf town here in winnipeg at that time they had like a teaching academy Right. And so the store on Empress Street that's still there in the back of the store at that time, there was a, a standalone teaching academy. So um, actually, I used to work there like in the off season when if I came back and I my professional season was over and I had like a couple months to kill or whatever, I'd go got to know the guys there a little bit and I would go work there once in a while. So anyways, long story short, I take the job as a teaching pro at golf town, Winnipeg, when I, my professional career or playing career was kind of done. And, um, at that time they'd have reps that would come in and kind of do like product knowledge sessions. So if a golf town staff guy, you know, you might have one week, the ping guy came in next week, the tailor made guy came in. So anyways, I just kind of caught my attention. I was like, well, that seems like a pretty good gig, like mm-hmm. representing a brand and, and still in golf. And, and so, um, I was just kind of doing my thing, teaching at Golf Town, and then the, the Nike job came up. And then when I it came up, Nike was still kind of um, new to golf. Like it definitely was kind of the new kid on the block. They were just kind of kind of making their way. And uh, long story short, I applied for the job, and I was lucky enough to get it. And um, it was a great experience. They're a great company to work for. They treated me great. Um, I learned a ton because it was kind of like it was my first sales. Rep, my, I always say I was. I think everybody to a to a degree is in sales in some form, but it was my first sales gig, I guess you could say, right time. And it was, yeah, it was great. Like I, I, one thing I would say for them is, you know, like a Kushnet and Titleist and Footjoy, very traditional, like extremely traditional, like very much rooted in the history of the game and and all the traditions that go along with the game. And Nike would have been almost the polar opposite of that. Like they were afraid to push the envelope. They were not afraid to like design some club that, you know, you'd be sitting in a sales meeting and they show you this club and you'd be like, whoa, well, I don't know if this one's going to fly like square drivers. Yeah. And, that's what and, I was going to bring up square. Yeah, drivers. Like <laughs> it was, it, and, and I don't know if anybody remembers this, but like the sound the driver made was just, like you could hear it from two holes over. Like it was so loud and such a different sound. And, you know, it just, to them, they kind of liked pushing the envelope a little bit, being a little bit different. And maybe, uh, maybe it hurt them at times, I think, because golf maybe is a little bit different than other businesses that they were in 
right. with Nike, but uh, I have nothing but good things to say. They were super good to me. And um, when I worked for them, the clubs and the balls were definitely kind of, they, they were kind of on the upswing, so to speak, but like footwear and apparel was the heartbeat of that, what, what we did. Right. So we sold a ton of apparel and a ton of footwear and that was bread and butter. So when Nike decided to get out of golf clubs, I always tell people, I think it was a surprise to everybody except the people that were in the industry. So if you were in the industry and you knew how much R and D and money and everything that goes into producing golf clubs. And if you're, um, if your products aren't getting any traction, you can see why a massive company like Nike takes a step back and says, we make so much money doing all this other stuff that we're really good at. Maybe, maybe it's time to just focus on that and, and let that, let the other stuff kind of go by the wayside. So, yeah. um, but I, it was a great experience. Yeah. And which opened the door, I believe for me to, to work for Titleist and FootJoy. So um, really good experience, but man, they were not afraid to uh, try some different things for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Pretty cool. 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 Uh, brand at the time for sure. And I always, I, I think I played their balls for a while and you can still find them out there. Mm-hmm. Ewok actually plays Nike's. He's our PGA correspondent. You would have heard him on our masters, uh, betting right. episode, but, uh, yeah, very hard to find now, obviously. Hard to find. Yeah. And the, like when I was working for uh, Nike, sorry, like tiger was kind of, it was like tiger mania. Mm-hmm. Like that was kind of when tiger was just going crazy and winning everything so it was it was uh an interesting time for sure well he was yeah a pretty good brand ambassador for uh, nike i'd say i think that partnership worked mm-hmm. out uh, f- fairly well <laughs> yeah <laughs> you did okay uh, well uh it's funny that you that you do bring bring him up and just looking at in mean, your past talking to the people in this industry like the golf industry is very very small and i mean your name always comes up as probably the the best to come out of Manitoba just with your amateur wins winning the Manitoba open as an amateur in 96 and just a spectacular play that uh, you know you did down south and we'll maybe get a little bit into that but was there was there a time where you're like you just felt like any tournament you went in you were going to win I'd love to say yes to that <laughs> but probably not um <laughs> I think that uh, golf is such a crazy game that, um, you know, one minute you feel like you're never going to play bad and one minute you feel like you're never going to play good. So it's a fickle game. And I think anybody that has been around it long enough knows that. But I think that when, like any sport, there's, you, you, there's momentum, right? And when you, when you can kind of build some momentum and have uh, a bunch of good play in a row, you can kind of ride that wave a little bit. So I think you see that on tour most times where you see a lot of their guys where they make kind of the majority of their money in the year within probably like a five to six week window, right. Where they kind of catch fire and they play really well for a stretch and then kind of, you know, ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows, but get on the right side of momentum a few times and have some good weeks and they kind of snowball on you. And, um, but like I said, I feel like, I feel like my being the, the youngest of three in my family, definitely. I, I was the recipient of a lot of good things because my, my brothers kind of laid the way for, for me before, 
uh, for me to kind of follow in that. So, um, and you know what, I had the opportunity, like I was super fortunate that I, uh, I was able to, to grow up and play uh, at a good course and I had uh, good equipment and I had every opportunity to play in tournaments. And, um, and then I had the opportunity to go play college golf in a great program with a great coach. And, um, you know, the, the, I really feel like that's kind of when my game really changed is when I went and played college golf and, and, you know, up until that point, I hadn't played year round. Like I, it was just a seasonal gig. And then when you really had the opportunity to play 12 months of the year and compete 12 months of the year against the best players in the country, um, that's really when I felt like my game took off. Were you down south in 96 or you playing collegiate golf at that time too, or was that before you, you made that step? Yeah. Yeah, So that would have been my sophomore year, my second year of college. Uh, So I played at the university of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Um, Yeah. And I played there for three seasons and then I turned professional after that. Um, So it was, it was like I said, I really felt like that's when my game really changed where I had the opportunity to, to train and practice all year uh, play in great tournaments, you know, play against the best players, uh, plus amateur players, kind of probably, I have to say the best amateur players outside of professional golf at that time. You know, I had the opportunity to represent Canada a few times at the world amateur and uh, played overseas and traveled all over the world and like just did stuff that I, if it wasn't for golf, I was just <laughs> never done. Um, but at that opportunity really felt like it kind of laid the groundwork for, um, my professional career for sure. Was that a, how did you get hooked up with the university of New Mexico? We've talked to a few people of scouts or now the kids are uploading their, their videos to the internet. What, what was that uh, process like for yourself? Yeah, definitely a different time when it went, when I went through it for sure. Um, because my other, my two older brothers both played college golf. We knew or, you know, my, my dad or my, my family kind of knew what to expect. Um, and at that point, or maybe a little bit, but not, you didn't see a lot of college golf coaches come to Canada. Um, so you really had to kind of go down there and play in some events to kind of get noticed. So, um, I went and played in the U S junior a couple of times, and that's really kind of, I would say what, caught some coaches eyes and then maybe that's kind of where it snowballed for me. And then I had a really good junior career. So, but I don't think if I were playing those tournaments in the U S at that time, it might not have opened the doors. Um, like if I just would have stayed in Canada and played in the Manitoba junior and the Canadian junior, but going to play in the U S junior first time I played in the U S junior, I, I did okay. Nothing great. The second time I, I played very, very well. And that, kind of opened the door for um, the coach from New Mexico to kind of recruit me at that time. And um, I went on a, a few different visits to, to be recruited at some schools and um, just, yeah, New Mexico just kind of fit, fit all the bill for me. So quickly alumni of the, uh, of the uh, university of New Mexico was uh, Steve-O was there in 1997. He's from uh, the series jackass, but uh, I don't know if you've <laughs> ever had any run-ins with Steve-O. Definitely not. No, no not that I remember or, or definitely that he doesn't remember. I yeah. I don't think he was a golfer back then at least. No. And that was the only one. 
And Rob, I'm not Michigan. sure how you're segueing from <laughs> from uh, that, Jr. No, well, I mean, you mentioned coaching, and we always, well, having started this uh, podcast three years ago now, and you know, my myself having worked in the industry, and now coming back to these professionals who I probably should have talked to a little bit more, and maybe picked their brain, and went out and played some golf with them more. Uh, just how valuable having a professional, like your local professional or whomever. Just chatting with them about the game to help you with your game. And so you mentioned, you know, your coach having a really good coach down there. We had Marshall Patterson mentioning a few coaches when he went down stateside. And so what is it about having that coach that's specifically helped your game? That's a great question. I think for anybody, there's a bit of a, there's a chemistry there, right? Like it would be for any coach in any sport. I think you, you try to find someone that kind of, you know, you have some chemistry with or some like-mindedness about how you want things done. Um, yeah, like I think for me, the the coach that I played for in college, his name was John Fields, who's now the, the coach at the University of Texas who won the national championship last year. Uh, so they, I think he's won two national championships there and just like an amazing guy. And um, for me, which was super important, like, uh, John played professional golf. He played college golf and he was a good player. And so he kind of, you know, like a player's coach, so to speak, like he kind of, he, he wasn't just a guy that ended up being a college coach, but never walked any, any miles in those shoes, so to speak. Right. Like he, he knew everything that you were going through, uh, which I thought was super important. And he was just a super good guy. Like at the end of the day, you're moving a long way away from home and, and there's going to be a little bit of culture shock there and all that good stuff. So you want to have a feel that the guy, you know, was looking out for your best interest. And that's totally, that was him in, in, in every way. So, but I think that to your point, like a lot of the guys that um, are around Manitoba, like there's a, we've, we've got a, a group of guys that are, are very, very good at what they do. And, you know, I think for what makes golf difficult at times is it's a very technical game, but you can't see yourself. Like you can't, you know, you, we've all played with our buddies and they go, Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but like you're aimed like 40 yards, right. <laughs> and you'd be like, Oh man, I don't, I didn't know that. <laughs> right. Like, it's just, you can't see yourself. You don't even realize you're making some of these mistakes, but if you have someone that can point out some of those little things to you, man, it makes a huge difference. And, and, and I'm not trying to bash any of the guys that, that have like online platforms where they teach online and they do all these things. Cause I think there's value in that too, but man, I think there's nothing can take the place of face-to-face conversation with somebody watching you hit balls, because I think um, that is so valuable. And if you, if I could give anybody any advice, it's like find a person that you click with, find a person that, that you have some success with, and then let that be your person because it's super easy to watch 72 different YouTube videos about how to swing a club. And then before you know it, you don't know what end to hold. So, um, yeah, like I think that's a huge, huge, uh, value in having those people that you can kind of count on and, and, uh, there's a ton of great coaches around here for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, that's an ongoing uh, thing this season or a trend this season is uh, stop watching YouTube, Mike. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty. Of it. <laughs> 
Which, well, and Instagram too is bad. You just keep scrolling through, and I have all these swing, <laughs> swing uh, training things saved in my Instagram, uh, and then I haven't, I haven't even reviewed them before. But I was like, oh, I gotta keep this one in the back pocket for for the <laughs> summer. That's right. I, I think I got three Canadian Junior Championships, four Manitoba Junior Championships and three Manitoba amateur championships. But I think there's probably a few things I'm missing there <laughs> as far no, as an amateur career. Yeah. I always say that the one, um, I turned pro when I was 21. So when I would have still been in college and, you know, a lot of guys still playing a lot of amateur golf, I turned pro when I was 21 because, um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And like, so my amateur career, like I had a very thankful for, I had great memories of my amateur career and I was able to accomplish some cool things, but it didn't last very long because I turned professional when I was 21. So, um, and the sidebar to that would be when I was, I won the Canadian or sorry, on the Canadian tour, I won the Manitoba open in 96, which gave me a three-year exemption on the Canadian tour at that time. So for me, I always knew, Hey, I'll, I'll tell my kids all the time, go to school, get good grades, do all those good things. But when I went to school at New Mexico, you know, golf was one school was two, no question about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was in golf and, and school was, school was okay, but it was definitely there for a reason. And so when I won the, the Mantle Open as an amateur, I actually wrote the Canadian tour at the time and said, would you hold my exemption until I graduate from school, would, would that be something you would do? Because I don't want to lose those, that, um, three-year exemption, uh, because that's super valuable when you're a young professional, know that you could have that exemption to go play professional golf. So long story short, they said, no, we won't hold it for you. So that's kind of when I knew that I was probably going to turn pro and, and, um, and go start maybe a little bit than, than I need, than I maybe originally planned. But having that three-year exemption there was um, a huge advantage that I wanted to make sure I didn't lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all that being said, um, 21. I was I turned professional when I was 21, and yeah, never kind of never looked back after that. Yeah, well, I wanted to get into the that 96 Manitoba Open as as for winning it as an amateur. I don't think you're the first amateur to win it in the last or the at the time the last 20 decade or 20 years and then i don't know if an amateur has won it since then i don't think so it's a good question i think james lepp maybe won one as an amateur but that was i can't remember how many years after i did it but uh and i don't you know james is originally from british columbia was a fantastic amateur player. I don't know how much professional golf James played, but he was a, a, a player. I think he maybe won a Canadian Tours event as an amateur. Outside of that, I'm not sure if um, if anyone has done it since, but I'd love to tell you that I'm super plugged into the mini tours or, or the Canadian Tour or now the, the McKenzie Tour, but I'm, I'm not. <laughs> so, um, but it was, it was a cool experience for sure. Yeah. I, and, as we've asked past guests, what was that like, you know, playing the Canadian tour at that time and some of those mini tours, you know, we've heard of guys living out of their cars and, you know, sleeping in the, these ratty places. Were you, uh, 
were you doing the tour that way or did you have some some good sponsors that you you could at least get a hotel i was yeah i was fortunate like i definitely had a lot of really good sponsors when i first turned pro and that's a big reason why i turned pro when i did because i kind of had everything laid out to be able to go and play for however many years and kind of chase my dream right i didn't know i wasn't going to have to worry too much about where i was going to play or was i going to have to go do it um now as my career went on you know you can only the the at the time when i was playing it was a nationwide tour or the or the canadian tour there wasn't you weren't making a live uh, you can maybe make a living out there but it was hard like you weren't getting rich put it that way so you either have to kind of when i played you had to move on and get to the pga tour or you or you either had to starve and uh i wasn't into starving and I wasn't good enough to get to the BGA tour, I guess. So, um, but it was a, a great experience. I didn't have to, any crazy stories where, you know, I was sleeping in the trunk, of my, you know, in my car or anything like that, but we definitely pinched pennies everywhere we could room with, you know, you know, usually travel with a bunch of guys and cut costs and yeah, but it was kind of like your own little fraternity, so to speak. Like it's lots of people call it like a traveling circus, which is pretty accurate at times. <laughs> Um, so, but there was, there was, you know, there was definitely guys that would maybe fit that bill more, but you know, when I played, it was, I would say there was like a group of guys that you could kind of see that were serious about it, that definitely wanted to kind of get to the next level. And then there was a group of guys out there that maybe they knew this was going to be a lot of fun for a couple of years and then they were going to do something else. So they had a different, maybe a little bit different, uh, perspective. I could, I could definitely yeah. see that. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the guys we interviewed, I think so. I think there, there's a lot of fun to be had out there. Oh, there's, there is, if you're looking for it, it's there. No question. Around that same time, you must've, I had read that you, uh, you had done Q school twice, maybe. And I just wanted to question you on that and that experience. Yeah. So I was for, like, so I played two years on the, again, at the, now the corn ferry tour, but it was called the nationwide when I was uh, playing, I had two years out there and the two years that I played out there because I got to the final stage of Q school twice. And at that time it was a completely different animal than it is today. It was, you know, there was um, three stages that you had to go through and you'd have to progress through each stage. And the final was six rounds played uh, with a cut after four days, I believe it was. Uh, maybe the first year I played, it was four. The last day, last time it was, there was no cut. But at the time there was 13 first stages across the United States. So basically think of it like 13, 150 man <laughs> tournaments. Yeah. Everybody that advanced from those 13 stages then go on to the second stage. Then there would be like six or seven second stages with 150 guys at each spot, plus guys that didn't keep their card on the PGA tour that would come to second stage. Then all those people would advance to finals and then from finals, you get all the people that advanced through the first and second stage. And then all the guys that came off the PGA tour that didn't keep their card. So by the time you got there, it, you, it was really, really hard to get there. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, the amount of pressure that, uh, and everything that was on the line was, ex I, I, 
I wish I could describe it, but it's so intense. It's there's just no, I, I can remember the first time I went through it after six days of the final stage, I was just, um, I was a write-off. I was a complete waste of a uniform for probably a week or so, because it was just, again, it's not the physical, like physically sure, but it's just more the mental mm-hmm. strain and mental stress that goes on with that. Right. So, um, but really cool experiences for sure. And then, like I said, that was the one that got me the ability to play on the nationwide slash corn ferry tour. Nice. Yeah. I couldn't imagine the uh, mental stress of that as, as I uh, crumble when uh, the superintendent is raking the bunker behind me or something, or <laughs> the cart, uh, the cart person comes up, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's funny because it's, you know, some guys handle it really well, but there, it's definitely a, like, it's a, it's a, an intense arena, right. Where you have guys playing for their livelihood. So a lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys handle it well, a lot of guys don't handle it well. And like you said, like people would snap over the littlest things because there's a big deal, right. There's a difference between playing on the PGA tour or, you know, playing in the North Dakota state open. So no, no disrespect to the North Dakota state open, but it's a little bit different. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. I think anyone would say that. Yeah. So that's a little different. And, yeah. and I just had one more, even talking about yeah. the, the pressure uh, on that. And I kind of related to, we had Brent Zarnion who is, who played collegiate baseball in the States and had a tryout with the Rockies and had a guy, well, Pete Rose had a guy, Pete Rose, uh, if you're a baseball fan, even if you're not a baseball fan, you probably know Pete Rose and he just took one look at him. He's like, Nope, he doesn't got it. We're like, Nope, doesn't have it. But I, I can imagine that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you even mentioned, you know, seeing the, some people are out there for the party. Some, you can see, okay, they're taking this a little more seriously, but I'm sure as soon as you went to play collegiate golf or you saw some of the guys who are maybe coming back from the PGA tour who have been, you know, playing the step below to the nationwide tour, it must've been a whole different game. Like how eye opening was that to you watching those guys play? Yeah, I think, um, I always say, and I'm sure most people would probably say the same thing today, that when when I played, I always felt like the top players in the world were maybe like a cut above. So at that time, let's say you know, Tiger, Ernie Els, you know, Davis Love, Fred, you know, whoever those players might be, David Duvall, like the top, top guys in the world, they were a cut above. But outside of those maybe 10, 15 guys, no disrespect to all the rest of the players, but I felt like there was probably a thousand guys that could play in those spots. Like there was just so many good players and just not enough places for them to play. And so you would, with all that, which sometimes is you would see certain players that you'd play against and you'd be like, this guy is a can't miss. Like this guy is going to be a world beater and wouldn't make it. And then you play with a guy who would you be like, this guy's got no chance. Like he, he's, I don't see it. And then that guy goes on and has a great career. And you just, it's just such a fine line. Like it's a razor thin line. Like those guys that are top, top, maybe a little bit different. I always tell the story, um, Ben Curtis, who won the British open. I can't remember the year, but um, I played some college golf against him and I'll never forget I was playing with him at the second stage of Q school one year and I was 
playing really well. And I cruised right through, like I finished like top five, right to final stage. And I get paired with them in the third round of the, of the second stage. And we're playing this super hard golf course in uh, California. And he is hitting it sideways, like every which way and getting it up and down from everywhere. And he probably should have shot 80 and he somehow maybe scraped it around and shot 74 or something. Mm. And I remember thinking like this guy, there's no chance this guy's making it past this stage, like (laughs) no chance. So we get through play the next day. I see him after, Hey, how'd it go? Oh, and I got in, I got in on the number. I made it right on the number. I'm like, Oh, wow. That's awesome. Good for you. Blah, blah, blah. You know, knew each other fairly well, not super well. Go to, go to final stage. I don't play very well. Same idea. He gets in, gets his PGA tour card on the number. The next year he wins the British open. Wow. <laughs> and you're just like, if that doesn't sum up professional golf, I don't know what does. And that's no disrespect to him because we all have weeks like that. Right. You know, I'm sure there's times when um, a guy that's had his tour card for 15 years gets paired with somebody and he doesn't has a bad week and hits it all over the map and misses the cut. Like those, and I always say that some of the cool things to happen is if you go to a tour event, don't just go watch the leaders because the guys they show on Sunday at the tur- at the tournament are the guys having the best weeks. Sometimes it's cool to go watch those guys that are first off Saturday morning that barely make the cut. You're going to see them hit some bad shots. You're going to see them miss some putts. Like they're hu- th- th- those things happen. But if that doesn't sum it up there, like a guy that you th- is like one step away from, missing its second stage and going to play in the North Dakota state open. And the next year he's wins the British open and his career is set. So it's a uh, wild stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. 2003 open championship win Ben uh, Ben Curtis uh, yeah. at Royal St. George's. All you need is a hot week. That's yeah, all we learned stuff. We can oh, do it, Mike. <laughs> Maybe a hot few years, and we'll, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and we'll get to single digits of our of our handicap. But, th- but that's all that I had. I mean, this was that was great, Mike. Uh, did you have a, yeah. a few more before the back nine? I, that relates relates mm-hmm. to this, but uh, curious if you ever had any hot weeks against Tiger in your collegiate days. I would say so. The flip side of that would be, you know, how razor thin the line is between you know, making it in professional golf and not making it in professional golf. And then Tiger would be the opposite end of the spectrum where I say he's really not that good. He's just been on a hot streak his entire life. (laughs) So uh, he's the other end of the spectrum where he's just been so amazing for forever. Um, So I always tell people that I I was fortunate enough to play with Tiger quite a few times in college. And, um, you know, like we were both West coast schools. He went to Stanford. I went to New Mexico. So we played a ton of college golf together. I'm sorry. We played a ton of college golf where we were at the same events. So I got to know him a little bit, not super buddy, buddy or anything, but we played a fair amount together and I got him a couple times for sure. But I always tell him he got me a whole lot more than I got. So I got him a couple times, but, uh, those were rare, rare occasions. I remember, one time we played together, we were both freshmen in college and uh, we were playing the NCAA regionals, which is you have to go to regionals to then get into the NCAA championship. So we were hosting it at our, in New Mexico 
in Albuquerque and we, I got paired with them the first day and I played terrible the first day. I think I shot like 78 or something like that. And he shot 72 and, but we got paired together for the first two days. And, uh, the next day we played together again, I shot 66 and he shot 72. So I say, I always get, I got him that day. Uh, he got me the first day, but he got me a whole lot more than I got him. But I always remember the, the, the thing that stands out to me about that day is, you know, um, he's such an intense competitor that sometimes if you're playing with a guy and he has a great day, you're like, Oh, that's great. Just happy for the guy. What a great day. Great round way to go. He didn't like it. Mm. He didn't, he didn't, he did not like getting beat. So, uh, it didn't matter if it was NCAA regional or anywhere. He was, uh, an intense, intense competitor, but, but a completely different guy from on the golf course to off the golf course, like on the course, all business, very cutthroat, but see him off the golf course. Really, really nice guy. Yeah. And in some of that niceness came out there. Was, and I'm sure this, uh, you can tell me if this is true or not, but after his uh, 97 masters, win, there was an interview with him and Barbara Walters and Barbara had asked uh, any other new and young players that we should watch for. And, and he named yourself Rob, Rob watch for Rob McMillan is what he said. So that's, you know, it's funny. I've heard that one like a million times and I myself never seen it, but, uh, that was, that was the rumor on the street for a long time. I I myself have never seen the footage. I wish I, I wish I somehow could, could get it if that's the case, but, um, I've heard that one quite a few times, but, uh, if he did say it it was, it was pretty nice of him for sure. Absolutely. That was a, a, 2000 article from the Globe and Mail from Michael Grange. So maybe Michael made that one up. I'm not sure. I, I, <laughs> looked, for that, I looked for that video too, and I, I couldn't see it, but uh, not yeah. to say that, that it doesn't exist out there. Maybe it died yeah, with the VHS, uh, VHS tapes sure. at Blockbuster. Who knows? It's gone the that's way right. it goes. <laughs> <laughs> did you want to jump Good. into the back nine there, Mike, or did you... Have a, yeah, let's jump into it. We can we can uh, save some of the uh, the other six pages I have of inf- of research for for next uh, time we have you on. <laughs> All right, well let's okay. uh, yeah let's jump into it. It's the back nine lightning round for Bryce Malashewski, who is investment advisor with Endeavor Wealth Management, part of IA Private Wealth, and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Give Bryce a call 204-515-3446. We also have a link to his email in our pod show notes, as well as uh, in our bio on our social media. So check him out, ask him some questions, maybe take him through a back lighting round. We should. Mm-hmm. We should. Uh, so Rob, just a, a quick um, nine questions here. Uh, fast fire, or usually they turn into longer stories, which is absolutely fine. Uh, first mm-hmm. one, uh, you got it. What would be your nickname that people call you? I think we've heard a few uh, Robbie Mac or uh, Rob McMillian, McMillian or mm-hmm. <laughs> Robbie Mac or Robo as I, I get once in a while still from some of my uh, people I used to play golf with, but Robbie Mac or Robo would probably be the ones there. Nice. Nice. Uh, have you ever got a hole in one? I have. How many? <laughs> I've had eight. Eight. <laughs> wow. That, uh, that's pretty good. You, you remember when you got, how old were you when you got your first hole in one? 
I was 16 when I got my first hole in one and I actually got it in the Canadian junior. Wow. And wow. funny story, I was, it was in uh, Nova Scotia, I believe. And I hit an absolutely horrendous shot that was about 10 feet off the ground, landed probably 15 yards short of the green, rolled up and went in the hole. So <laughs> yes. lots of luck involved in that. <laughs> not so much, not so much of a good shot, but I remember I was so rattled that I made double on the next hole. Oh, so it was like, it was, we, uh, it we was, hear uh, that a lot that, uh, yeah. usually you don't do so well, uh, the, the whole following your hole in one. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, maybe if I had a better shot, I wouldn't have been so rattled, but it was such an ugly shot that went in the hole. I felt almost felt a little guilty. <laughs> so you had to get seven Any holes and ones on. Yeah. Seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any holes and ones on a, a par four. No, well, we've had a couple guys do that, but so that's your next goal for your that's the next one. <laughs> uh, next question. This one's going to be obvious, but we ask it to everyone. What would be your preferred golf ball brand and model? Well, I have to say I would take my Titleist Pro V1. No questions asked. Um, yeah. And I've always been a Titleist guy for a long time, but yeah, Titleist Pro V1 for sure. Awesome. I will I will say on the golf ball uh, well, front, Mike, before you jump into the next question, yeah, yeah. Uh, I knowing that Pinnacle is uh, under the Akushnet umbrella there, I love playing them in the wind. Pinnacle golf balls in the wind. They just seem to cut through it like nothing else. Don't know yeah, what it is, it, but they're great. You know what? Great it's in the wind. Uh, low spin, maybe. Maybe because of the lower, lower <laughs> yeah. spin. Good for Manitoba. That's right. What do we got? 70 kilometer hour winds coming tomorrow with this blizzard? Mm. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to bring it up. But uh, speaking of Manitoba, what would be your favorite course, your most favorite course to play in Manitoba? I'd have to go with Pine Ridge. Yeah, I grew up at Pine Ridge. Uh, it's just, a, like, I always say, it's like they're like my second family out there. So it's a special place. It's my It's my happy place for sure. Lots of great memories around there for lots of different reasons, but Pine Ridge for sure. And then uh, would you have a bucket list course just in Manitoba that you've never played and you've always wanted to get out to? Oh man, that's a good one. Um, I'm a, I'm a little spoiled because I get, I've played a lot of golf around Manitoba. Um, I don't know if I have one that maybe I haven't played that really, uh, it jumps up to me. You know what I've heard um, from a lot of people that they really enjoy is a Killarney is hmm. I've heard is, is quite an enjoyable little track. Hmm. And sometimes I feel like a lot of those little rural courses don't get the, the, the props that they should. Um, I've never been, I've never played out there. Uh, I don't know why, but it's just maybe um for various different reasons, I haven't been out there, but I've, I always hear great things about that track. And um, a lot of those small rural courses are, are fantastic to play. But uh, growing up, or or in the industry, where uh, if I do get out in that area, it's usually for work. It's not for not for play. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think I've heard Killarney before. And maybe is there a lake there, and maybe some uh, elevation change, probably. A little bit, yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we'll add it to our bucket list, uh, Jr. And mm-hmm. we can we can get on our tour of Manitoba in the world and play these courses. Rob, uh, what would be the most memorable course you've ever played? I'm sure you've played some some pretty nice tracks and 
you can give us a, a top three if you wish. Mm, man, that is a tough one. Whew. I've been super spoiled, so it's hard to pick three. A few years back, I got a chance to play Cypress Point out near Pebble Beach, which is like super hard to get on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was absolutely amazing. Um, I got to play uh, Pebble as well, which was outstanding. It was a lot, a lot of fun. Um, this past summer, I got to play Pinehurst number two which was incredible. I really, really enjoyed that. Like, um, I really enjoyed the, like, if you look back at old footage of Pinehurst and Pinehurst number two and like Payne Stewart one, and it was all, it was more like a Parkland golf course. It was, you know, green grass everywhere where now it's been into that restoration where there's lots of, um, sand dunes and things like that. And it's just, it's fantastic. Like, uh, for people that know, golf around here, like Elmhurst and Pine Ridge, which are two Donald Ross golf courses. I would say Pioneer's number two. It's like taking the ninth green of Pine Ridge and playing it on every hole. Hmm. And it's just insane how undulating and slopey and, and all the runoff areas. And um, if anybody's just like, selfish plug for Pinehurst, but if anybody ever gets a chance to get out there, it is phenomenal. It is so worth it. And, um, it's hard to pick uh it's hard to pick three but those are those are top three that are i'd have a hard time kind of uh one-upping there those are those are some nice top threes that's for sure um and pioneers you can you're, it's a public course right you can like I, a regular yeah. uh dude yeah. can can just go and book a tea time there might cost a couple hundred bucks but uh, yeah, and I think they have like ten or eleven golf courses there, like at Pinehurst. Right. Like there's, there's, it's. I always say like Pinehurst is all golf. Like you're not going to Pinehurst to to do anything other than golf. It's like a true, true golf experience. Awesome. We'll get there. We'll get there. And we heard about the the cradle, the par three course, which sounds pretty which is fun. Unreal. Yeah, it is so much fun. Do you? Uh, what would be your bucket list course? to play anywhere in the world. Augusta, I'd have to say, I don't, I don't know how that would ever happen, but definitely. And it's kind of fitting that it's master's week that I say that, but that's just that uh, it's my favorite tournament in the world. Just everything about it, the history. And it's so cool that it's always played there and all the past champions that come back. And yeah, I just always think that maybe the masters too has a little bit of a, special place as a Canadian because it kind of feels like that's when the golf season starts. So maybe it, it, it strikes a chord with us, maybe up North, maybe more than other parts of the country or other yeah. parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Augusta would be, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Have you been as a, a patron? I haven't, I haven't, which is people always say to me, how have you never been there? Mm-hmm. But uh, for whatever reason, it just never worked out. But if, if there's a bucket list, uh, that, that's top of the list for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's done pretty well. Everyone's top of their bucket list. We, at one point we, we said, you can't say Augusta anymore and uh, yeah. taking, it, <laughs> taking it out of the bucket list. But uh, yeah. And you never hear anybody that comes back from there and gives it to like, man, it was okay. Right. <laughs> like everybody's just blown away. Like it just knocks everybody's socks off. So yeah. That's, yeah. That's yeah. I was reading an article today too, as a, you, you you get in the spirit of the masters and 
everyone's just in such a, a great mood to be there. And then you just mm. end up having great conversations with strangers and uh, yeah, looking forward to that. You got a quick uh, master's prediction for us. I, this will drop after the master's is over. So mm. we could, we could edit in the winner's name, but uh, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, I always say that I am a terrible person to, pick a winner because I am, I, I have to pick brand biased. Oh, oh. So uh, I'm going to say Jordan Spieth has been uh, in good form. He's had some good weeks and he definitely know uh, past champion there. So I'm, I'm going to uh, maybe hitch my wagon to Jordan Spieth. Sounds good. There you go. Put a few <laughs> shekels on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, getting a boost from the pod. Um, okay, my uh, my wild card here. This might be a biased answer by yourself, but uh, in your opinion, who would be the best golfer in your uh, McMillan family? <laughs> oh, man. Well, my my brother Dave used to say it perfectly. He always said my mom was the best player because <laughs> he wanted to make sure he kept everybody in check there. But um, you know. Uh, I would say my, my nephew Ryan is a really good player. Mm-hmm. Um, probably plays a lot of golf right now. Um, so I maybe have to give him the nod in the McMillan clan right now, but yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I'd have probably have to give him the nod. And, and then between the brothers. Oh, that that's a coin toss. <laughs> I saw, uh, I think it was avid golf and Ryan, they had a, a, a long drive competition just recently and, Ryan was, I was, he, uh, almost, I forget what it was. What was it? It was almost, almost 400, 400 yards. yards I yeah. thought it was like three ninety something. That's crazy. How far it's, it's just like the new generation. It's just insane. Wild. Wild. And then our, uh, flagship question of the back nine lightning round. What is your favorite condiment? Ooh, I'm going to have to go with, uh, hot sauce being from my college days in New Mexico. There's a a certain brand that I love and I can't think of it right now, but it's uh, like a hot sauce on pretty much everything. I can't go wrong. Spicy food. Love it. That's great. uh, Good answer. Yeah. I'm I'm sure they have some uh, good hot sauces down in Albuquerque. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, it's world-class for sure. Yeah, I can understand why you get on that. Hey, I'm a big hot sauce guy now too, and I know Levy from Team Lefty, who's been a frequenter of the of the podcast. He's into the hot sauce and the spice as well. Maybe it's the thing too, as you get Good older stuff. and your taste buds go away. But who knows? Anyways, that uh, <laughs> that was the uh, that was the back nine lightning round for Bryce Matlashewski, who is an investment advisor with Endeavor Wealth Management, part of IA Private Wealth, and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. You can contact Bryce two zero four five one five three four four six rob this was excellent we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us chat a little bit about golf tell us your story talk about titleist and uh we're looking forward to maybe playing some of those dash lefts if we ever get our our hands on them (laughs) you betcha yeah thanks for having me on anytime well always love coming on and chatting golf anytime all right yeah thanks again i'm sure we uh I'm sure we only got through 10% of your, your stories. So we'll have to, we'll have to get you back on too and dig into some of those real juicy ones. There you go. 
like I like it. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again for coming on. And I uh, will chat with you next time. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Okay, guys. And you can count on me waiting for you in the parking lot. Ooh.